Hey, I'm Jeremy Utley. And I am Mar Hershenson. Welcome to the Paint on Pipette podcast. I'm the father of four daughters, and I've got blind spots. I know what the world is like from my perspective, but I don't know what it's like from theirs. So I set out with my friend, Mar Hershenson, to understand the perspective of female founders from a range of diverse industries and cultural backgrounds. I'm excited to have you on the learning journey with us as we dive into these amazing conversations. All right, let's get started. In this episode, we talk to Anna Leva on how she built her company, Lelu. Lelu is bringing bilingual education into households. We'll talk to Anna about how she builds product collaboratively, whether it is from talking to her customers one-on-one, from listening to everyone in her team, or from just bringing her kids into her own business. We also talk with Anna about what it's like to build a business as a mother, about growing in the conviction that you are the right founder for a business, and about founding a tribe of collaborators to support you when the going gets tough. So basically, Mar and I have been talking about how there's a lack of, I, I'll speak for myself, I lack female founder role models in terms of my own mental, you know, model and worldview. And not that I don't know many of them, but I would say I don't do a great job of following up and understanding, even in general, the founder experience more after the Launchpad um, experience. And I want to understand it better. And as Mara and I were talking, we thought, wow, what an amazing opportunity to get to interact with some spectacular founders we know in this day and age. And just here, what's, what's, what's it like to be launching a business as a female founder? And what advice would you give to others who are curious about setting out on that journey? For myself, I'll speak as a father of four daughters, you know, who wants to see them reach all the potential that they were made to reach. Um, I'm very curious to learn from other spectacular women like yourself and say, hey, how do you think about it? How do you stay inspired? How do you stay invigorated and, um, and, have, and, and find the courage and the willpower to persist in the face of resistance and obstacles, et cetera, et cetera? What does your daily practice look like? So I'm sure we'll get into a lot of your journey, but for both me and Mar, you were someone who came to the top of our list in terms of people that we'd want to speak to, to learn from about your journey. So that's kind of the, that's the preamble, so to speak. I don't know if Mar, if you thought of a good first question, if you want to launch the conversation, you're welcome to. I think you're not just a female founder slash CEO. You're like a mom with young children. (laughs) I think that makes you so special. So I think for everybody, I think a lot of founders start their companies in their late 20s, early 30s, and there is little children running around. How do you do that? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I think about this all the time because... Um, you know, in different ways, folks will ask, like, how did you decide to become an entrepreneur? I get that question all the time. Uh, how did you decide to become an entrepreneur? And I really feel like this business, this concept really chose me. It's weird. Like, I, I don't, and it was the experience of becoming a mom that totally made me shift careers. I was super settled into a career path. I thought that I would, I saw myself going all the way up on that, in that, um, you know, sales, I was working in tech at two unicorns and really happy. And 
when we decided to have kids, we did it because I felt like, oh, I, I found a career path. It's a, it's a great time to have kids. And it was the experience of having them that showed me there was this huge gap in, in absence of resources. And so it's funny when people ask me what it's like to be an entrepreneur as a mom, I'm like, it's because of my kids that I'm an entrepreneur. Like they're the reason um, that I saw this need. And my kids are so, my kids are an asset based on my, because of the type of business I'm, I'm running and doing. Anytime I say that I have kids, it's like a plus, it's a good thing. And I think a lot about what if I wasn't running a business that had anything to do with kids? I think that would be a lot more challenging, right? Because my kids only enrich and I, they're part of it. They, they help me. They're like my tests, my lab, you know, and, and so they're this huge asset. I want to say that they would be an asset regardless that, you know, obviously the experience of becoming a mom and just all the ways that changes you. I think being a mom has made me so much more empathetic. Um, I, I understand the world. I think of the world differently because of the experience of being a mom. So it's only enriched my life. But I do, I, I wonder a lot about if I wasn't starting a business that was so directly connected to them, if that, if that would be, if that, I would feel more like of a dissonance. I think one one last thing that I'll say is I'm really grateful to get to model this for my kids. My son actually over in December, December was a crazy month. We were getting ready to launch this like subscription version of Lelu. And so just working a ton. And he, he asked me, he goes, mommy, why did you do this? Like, why are you doing this business? And just point blank. He's like, what, why are you putting yourself through this? And I had a really candid conversation. I'm like, well, I can't just expect somebody to be the change I want to see, right? Nobody else is doing this and I want to put this into the world. And I'm really grateful to get to model that for my kids. And, you know, I see, I don't know, inklings or startings of entrepreneurship in them. Like my son's like, I want to start a business. And I I love that. I'm grateful to get to model that. I hope that they will, that they're getting a crash course in entrepreneurship uh, through, through this. And then, sorry, one one very last thing I'll say uh, to answer the question is my daughter, I think COVID has also made it very unique. Um, my daughter was homeschooling up until a few weeks ago, and that was really challenging to have to have her around all the time and just really eager for my attention. Finding ways, I had, I had to get really creative about ways that I could make her part of my work and my time, even with things that weren't, I, I had to get really creative. So that was a a true challenge. But overall, I'm grateful. I think my kids have only ever been an asset. Being a mother has only enriched my life, my point of view, my perspectives, my drive. So can you say, can you say a little bit about how you shifted from, because it's one thing to become aware of a need, right? And you mentioned having children made you aware of this hole in the world, you know, something you wanted to see in the world that didn't exist. That's like an existential you know, uh, observation, what shifted you from seeing the need to, I must meet that need? And how did you rally the courage, especially now you're a mom, you weren't before you were settled in your career. How did you practically make the decision to go from seeing the need to deciding to, to shape your life towards meeting the need? Yeah. I think another big piece of my identity that really shaped my journey around entrepreneurship is the fact that I grew up low income and had parents that were relying on us, on on the kids to kind of help them out financially. And that had always been a dream of mine to buy my parents a house and to um, see them, move them away from worrying and living paycheck to paycheck. And that really shaped the initial part of my career. I, I think that maybe had I 
um, not had that commitment or the sense of obligation. I think I may have moved into entrepreneurship earlier, but both having feeling the commitment to my kids and also to my parents was was huge. And I think really did make me question this journey a lot. So for example, even the, the decision to go back and get an MBA, it was that was the safest way that I could explore an idea like Lelu because I was in a really comfortable, very well-paying job. And I knew that coming out of Stanford, I could go back to something very just like that. The opportunity cost was, you know, I wasn't giving up too much. Um, and I, I wasn't directly saying I'm going to start a business and, and just walking away from a lot of, yeah, I don't know the security of, of the job and the path that I was on. And so it, it really did take a lot of courage. And, and one challenge that, that I didn't foresee going into Stanford was that I would have a lot of options and that the sense of like get, getting to Stanford and saying, I had this idea, I saw this need, but now I can do all these like other amazing things that was, it added kind of another, another challenge. When, when I found the courage to actually pursue it was really when I found conviction that I was like, I, and I have this conviction now, I think I'm the best suited person to solve this. I have uh, all of my life experiences have led me to the point where I see this need. I have a huge passion around it. And I am now have the tools necessary to bring this into life, to bring this to life and lead a team that can be this difference. And so getting to that place of conviction, I would say was the biggest, what finally made me take the plunge. And, um, and my husband always jokes, he's like, you're just doing this so that it exists for our kids. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of true, right? Like I, if I stopped doing Lelu, it wouldn't exist for our kids. And that has also kept me very committed to the, to the problem is just, yeah, seeing how much my kids are getting from it, knowing that there's something really special that again, if I step back, nobody else would do. So I think it was really finding that conviction that allowed me to take the plunge. And, and, and frankly, having already gotten to a place where in my early part, in the early part of my career, we could, we did get my parents a house and all, all the things that were on kind of, you know, my wish list um, and just being confident that my kids would be okay. I, I actually, I heard I think you know your Princeton speech that you gave to the incoming class, and it was so inspiring. And I just remember you talking about your mom during the 2008 crisis and how you touched, you know, turned to entrepreneurship to actually, you know, pull her out of stuff. So I thought that was, you know, I sort of feel like your whole family, your mom, your kids, it's a big part of who you are as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm so touched that you remember that, Mara. All the details from that. Thank you for mentioning it. Was it was very inspiring. I thought it was, you know, I, don't, I was very, very inspired. I should feel you're lucky to have such a great family. So I, I feel so grateful every day for my, yeah. my parents. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Anna, you said that you realized conviction. You you came into a conviction that you were the best person in the world. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. You didn't say this, but you basically said, there was a point at which I had conviction. I was the person to do this. Will you tell us about that point? What led you to that conviction or how did you realize it? What was the process that led up to it? And what was maybe the moment that you go, it's got to be me or if not me, then who? How did that happen? Yeah. Okay. So um, Graham Weaver, who maybe you both know, he's a professor. I don't know if he's officially a professor, but he teaches MGE at uh, the GSB. And 
Um, oh, that's managing growing enterprises. And so it's basically a class that leads you through different things that you may encounter when growing a, a company or you know building a company. And he famously begins the class by telling us about a genie. If you found this magical genie and the genie could grant you success in whatever career field you chose or whatever line of work you committed to, what would you ask for? Where, wh- what field would you ask to be successful in? And so he asks us that question at the beginning of the quarter. We go through the quarter, lots of great lessons all throughout. And at the end of the class, he finishes up saying, you're the genie. You're at the GSB. You're, most people graduating from the GSB, whatever they pursue afterwards, they're successful and they find success in whatever they devote their time and talents and efforts to. You're the genie. Like you can make this, you can make your dream come true. And I think it was, yeah, I don't know, finding that, realizing the sense of agency in that, like, oh, I can, one, this is my dream. This is truly what I would ask for. If I could have success in any career, this is what I would want this to be successful. And that was a huge turning point for me in saying, you know, this is something that I'm committed to pursuing. And yeah, maybe success isn't guaranteed. I would maybe push back a bit that I, I don't have guaranteed success in Lalu, but I do know that coming out of this, I will have learned a lot. I will have even even up to now. If it, let's say everything fails and implodes, it's it was totally worth it. I, I know it for a fact. It's this journey has been worth it. It's it's been so much more fulfilling. And another thing that they say a lot at the GSB is like, what what journey is going to help you learn the most? And this is absolutely that journey for me. And as much as it can be tempting to say, like, I could be so comfortable. I could work so much less if I took a normal job and have all the security of a, of a salary. I'm grateful every day for what I'm learning. Um, I see the value in it. Yeah, but it was really that that MGE, that, that class that really helped me find that conviction and that sense of like, oh, and just seeing, I don't know, it was like this this moment of like the stars aligning, like really, truly, I, I, everything. And then throughout, the, you know, since I graduated, just seeing how well aligned my story is with what I'm working on, right? This truly is, I feel like everything in my life has brought me to this point, to this moment. Um, and I didn't, looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, my dad always really emphasized bilingualism. He cared so much about it. He encouraged me in my Spanish growing up. And he then he wanted me to learn French. And then I studied Arabic. And all of that encouragement around bilingualism that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of until I, I had kids, you know, looking back and seeing like, wow, this is really the, the perfect thing, that, the thing that I need to be doing. I think with all this conviction, sometimes there's moments of doubt in your journey. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about that. All the time, Mar. I, it's funny. My my poor husband, he hears about this. All. I'm like, should I, should I stop this? Like, is this going to work? Like, what am I doing? You know, and adding to the fact that there, for my husband too, he's, his, his career journey has been kind of bumpy and Uh, has been a bit uncertain. And so that's challenging too, right? Like, should I just go out and get something that's like secure? Sure. You know, we were confident and, and um, I think I'm grateful for his encouragement because yes, Mar, I have all kinds of doubts all the time. And, and yet I think I don't, I don't ever doubt though, that I'm, I'm suited for this company or for this job, for the, the problem we're solving. I don't doubt that. So I have strong conviction around that, but I do doubt like, is this the right timing? You know, like, should I go do something secure and then come back to this in a decade? Or my kids are young. Am I missing out on things with them because I'm super busy now? Like, 
when do I want to be more available to them? Like I, I do think about that and their timelines. And recently I was actually reflecting on the fact that my, my son just turned six wow. and oh my gosh, Mar, you'll, you'll think this is so funny. He told me he's in kindergarten um, at Nueva and he told me the other day, mommy, I'm ready for first grade. And I'm like, you're not like, we're I'm not ready for you to be in first grade. That's awesome. <laughs> but I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, he's a, a third of the way to 18. And if, the next 12 years have gone as fast as the first six years went. I'm like, after. stop. I'm like, I see it like flying by, you know? And so I think sometimes those are the things that make me wonder, like, is this really the right thing? And it, I, I, I'm, I'm working harder than I've ever worked in my life. And, um, yeah. and yet my husband's like, but you're home. But I'm like, but I don't feel like I'm home. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm available to them and, and able to, you know, so I think and that's where I feel, I do feel that way myself with my kids all the time. But um, I mean, one of the silver linings I would say is that um, they are very independent, you know, and they figure things out by themselves really quickly. And you humans know, are capable of a lot. We just don't know. Absolutely, you know. that's one of the the things. Laurel recently, my daughter recently started at a at a preschool. And one of the things her teacher has noted to us, she's like, your daughter is so independent. Like she'll just, yes. you know, go and find her own fun and she'll lead people into things. And I'm like, oh my, I think she learned that over, over like the, over because of COVID, because it's like, I'm like, go play, go, you know? And, and she, yeah, I'm grateful for that. I, it was a moment where I was like, oh good. Hopefully it's serving her in some way that I'm yes. busy, you know? <laughs> yes. You're good. You're good. Don't worry. <laughs> My kids have not turned out to be criminals yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. While we're on the subject of kids, Anna, one thing you mentioned that I just wanted to circle back to, you mentioned that your son wants to start a company or, or that, that he, that entrepreneurship is a part of the family, the dinner time conversation. How do you think about steering those, you know, little ambitions or are there, are there practices, behaviors ways of interacting that you employ to cultivate that attitude in your children based on your own experience? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know, as I mentioned, my parents were immigrants to this country. So they, low income, they, I didn't have models of like, you know, talking about work or something during dinner time because my parents didn't have kind of work subjects that they wanted to be discussing. So it's, it's interesting to get to sit down at dinner and say like, Oh, well, what did you do today? Oh, well, or what business problem am I solving? And I think one, one practice that I've, we've leaned in to a lot is when my son asks, cause he does, he asks a lot of questions like, what are you deciding? Or he overhears conversations, for example, that I have with my employees. And what was that about? Instead of just dismissing him, I, I engage it. I try to explain whatever problem it is that I'm solving or, or dealing with with him and, and try, I'm like, how do I boil this down to explain it to you in a way that you understand it? And it's actually, it's been really helpful where I ask him his opinion. We have this, we're trying to figure out which of these two fonts to use or whatever, any sort of thing that we're facing, what, what do you think is best? And what do you think will resonate more with our audience? And he'll ask, what's an audience? What's, you know, who, all of those types of questions, just engaging in them, I think isn't something I didn't grow up with. And a thing that I'm very committed to working through with him he also has any, any idea that he has, we just like say, okay, go do it. Like if you have, if you, if you, for example, he was like, I'm going to design a new type of Lego and I want to sell them. I want to sell this new type of Lego. 
And I was like, well, what's going to distinguish your Legos from the existing Legos? Why would anybody buy your Legos and not, you know, buy the Legos that exist and, you know, make a prototype. So he like got busy into making a prototype (laughs) and just, I think, encouraging him and yeah, early signs of entrepreneurship has, has been important to us. So great. That's really cool. I love, you know, one of the things that I would imagine, I don't know if I just, if I had to, you know, infer from that conversation, it requires greater mastery to simplify, you know, conversations and things like that. And I can imagine that you probably have breakthroughs in how you think about different challenges you're facing in breaking them down to a level that a six-year-old can understand. You go, when it gets to kind of the irreducible elements it may enable you actually to see or to gain a perspective that you didn't have when you're thinking in complex adult terms. 100%. Every time, every time I'm like, oh, you know, I, I think the temptation is to feel like I don't have time to, have, to explain this to you. But every time I do and I take the time to try to boil it down, it's helpful. It's always, it, 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 yeah, there's like this clarity that opens up. It's like, oh, that's, that's really what's at the core of this instead of this like other thing that I had, you know, that was like, masquerading as the the true issue so awesome yeah it's really it's cool i mean to me it's a that's an amazing in a way it's a structural i don't know what else to call it an environmental requirement right and i feel you know when it comes to creative practice you know setting aside or regardless of entrepreneurship or not creative practice take wondering for example I believe wondering is deeply and profoundly important. That and that's like a that's a truth that I hold dear. Yet, if I'm on a walk with my kids, anything they wonder about is annoying because I want to be back home within five minutes. You know, it's like and your wondering is not convenient right now, right? And so I feel oftentimes this kind of hypocrisy almost, or at least a, like I often notice in myself. I say I value wondering. But right now, wondering is not convenient. And I love that instead of kind of forcing the adult perspective by kind of almost surrendering yourself to the environmental factors there, it enables you in a sense to do what needs to be done. It's probably like a very effective management tactic to break something down to its fundamental elements, right? But if you got told in a management class, whenever you're dealing with an employee issue, break it down to its fundamental Guaranteed you'd never take the time to do it, right? But you've got a six-year-old saying, what's that about? And basically serving the purpose that a management guru right, might, might advise you to do, right? <laughs> so it's just really, it's cool to think about how some of those things are actually gifts if you don't fight it. 100%. I also think it's, I mean, like I said, you have so many facets, Anna, because you're a special female, I would say, special founder. You're also, you know, Hispanic founder, and I, I believe an inspiration to many. And I believe you're, if it's not your co-founder, your first employee was also a woman. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I haven't caught up with you in a few I months. Know. Yeah, Grace, Grace was, yeah, a woman and, and you had the opportunity to meet her. She's since left Lalu. We realized that she wasn't the best fit. Yeah, absolutely. We we definitely identified a lot in that in you know being women being she was Taiwanese and um, and immigrated to the U.S. because of her spouse who's Taiwanese American and there are very few Latina founders and there are a number of different uh, reasons why that's the case. But you must be I, an inspiration. I think the responsibility of being a Latino founder. <laughs> yeah. And again, that identity is really well represented in the work that we're doing, right? It's like we are 
literally building this for a, 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 this like Latino audience in, in the U.S. And so there's so much of that. Like, for example, even today, it was like on Instagram, this page that is all about, you know, empowering Latinas was like shop Latina owned and support Latinas supporting Latinas. And it's been really um, wonderful to get to lean into that and yeah, find kind of a tribe uh, of other Latina entrepreneurs where we can support one another. And it's been phenomenal both to be an example. I'm grateful for that. I can be an example, but also to get to learn and be on this journey with other pioneers, right. That, and walk alongside them. Cause I, yeah. I like the word tribe. I sort of feel like it's a founder. You need that support layer. And if you don't have it, it's really, really hard. Well, they should have founder anonymous, I think, sometimes. Like, <laughs> because it's uh, only a few people can understand those problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's when you that. talk about that tribe, I'd be curious to know just specific examples of what, what would you say is the biggest thing you've gotten from that tribe? Could be a lesson, it could be a tactic, a principle, or whatever. And then, what do you feel like you've been separately but related? What do you feel like you've been uniquely equipped to give to that tribe? That's such a good question. What what I've gotten is just honestly, I think what's been most helpful is voices like really just support support of the idea, support of the business. Like this is great. I want this for my own kids and that support, that over resounding like encouragement has been invaluable and also really practical help. Like this is what we use to build an app before we had our first engineer and just those being able them pointing us to resources that have helped them on their journey. So those, those two things I think are what I've gotten and what I've uniquely given. Honestly, and this is, it's interesting to reflect on this, but I, I had children younger than most people have children in, on my, on this path. So I was working and again, very settled into my career. And so my kids are older than most other, if other Latina founders have kids, they're like really young. And so I think, I don't know, being able to contribute like a experience is like, um, and again, my son is six. So it's not like I've had all this experience of being a mom, but of the among the group of this tribe, I am the mom with like the oldest kids, even though I'm not the oldest. And so I think that is a unique contribution. Yeah, it's it's just a unique path that I married my college sweetheart. And then the, you know, the journey that we've we've been on, I think I would say that that's the thing that really, I don't know, would distinguish me among among the group. You know, we interviewed another founder a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about, I forget their name that used, they had a great name. I think Jeremy will remember, but it was the equivalent of tribe, but for their customers, there was kind of this, uh, what was it called? The design council or something? Design, like yeah. Design council. Yeah. Which I thought was a great idea. I don't know if you guys, if you have the equivalent for your users, or how do you bring in your user's voice? I sort of feel that your moms will have so much to say. <laughs> so much to say. Yeah, it's funny. We had a, a mom reach out, I think last after our fall pilot. And she was like, do you have a, a parent ambassador program? And I'm like, well, now we do. You're the first, you know? <laughs> I was like, so building as we go. I, we do. We do have a, a, a team of like a set of moms who are very vocal and want to help and want to contribute. And um, it, that's been so 
phenomenal. And there isn't any sort of formal, I don't like gather them. I don't know how, if this design council, if they like gather them. You should connect you with them, Anna. You should talk to them. Yeah. They actually invite. So what's kind of cool is they invite a small select group of kind of target users into their team Slack. So inside of their Slack and they share early product ideas with them. They get feedback on it before they launch to the broader network, et cetera. That's phenomenal. That's incredible. One of the things I'll just share a hack because who knows whenever this will be shared more broadly. I mean, you know, these conversations, we're hoping maybe to package them in some way and share them, but you may not, it may be a year, I don't know. But one of the things that they said that I thought was kind of cool and useful is not over programming the interactions, that there's a temptation to want to send a survey and you got to answer, you got to do these four things and then answer these five questions. And they noticed that that introduced a lot of friction into the relationship. And so instead, they started biasing much more towards like really quick questions. And and interestingly, I found, or you know, Mar, I'd be curious to hear what you think too. One of the things that struck me was they had to learn when in the user journey, it's appropriate to engage someone. And for them, it was right after they had used the product, they're particular and they, you know, they, they have a visual design tool that enables folks to create something. And right after they use it, they, they're particularly primed to give feedback, to interact with new ideas, et cetera. And so they've kind of, over time, they've dialed in the, you know, the calibration on not only who to engage, but at what time in their journey to engage them, That's which awesome. I thought was pretty cool. I think you would be so good at it, Anna, as well. I actually sort of feel like all female let companies are the best, most appropriate people to do this. No, that's such a great idea. Yeah, because we we interact with our um, parent ambassadors is what we call them regularly, but not... We, we, yeah, we ask them for feedback basically within the whatever experience, monthly experience we're providing for them. But I love the idea of inviting... I hadn't even thought about inviting them into our Slack instance. And we had we had one mom. It's so funny. She's like, there are a s- short list of companies that I would go back to work for. And you're one of them. She's like, so if you could, if you are hiring, like, please think of me. And yeah, we're, we're, we're like, how do we engage that create, you know, her obviously interests without, uh, we can't hire her right now. But, you know, leading up to that, it's so I love this idea. Well, That's one cool. of the things that, that they said that I thought was pretty cool. I don't know if you remember this, Mar, but they were mentioning how, the folks who are in that category are kind of entrepreneurial themselves. And they actually love seeing behind the scenes in the founder journey. And so not just talking about the product, but almost being a little bit transparent about the trials and tribulations of being a founder. They found that that created more engagement among the design council because they're they're not only uh, interested in the product, but they're interested in the founder lifestyle as well. Yeah. Which to me was a pretty cool, you know, tactic almost of opening up what what is what's the content I could be putting out to this group of people. It's not only product iterations. It may just be, man, you know, this is a crazy process. And they may be really interested in the process of getting something new out the door or yeah. a team dynamic, right? Did they give indi- any indication um about how large their design council is? Is is it a small group of people larger? No. It started, I think it's when I spoke with them probably four months ago, I think there were 10, but they mentioned to us that it's ballooned to closer to 40. But I think they've gotten one of the things that they really dialed in is what 
kind of user is the right kind of user to include. So it's not just anybody and it's not just power users necessarily. There's a particular kind of psychographic that they, I don't, and I don't know what it is, right? Share it, but that's the, the, one of the things that they feel like they got right is they figured out the right person to have involved in the council. Hmm. So there was to me, a lot it's, of transparency. I saw that out from there that actually being a little more transparent and showing how the sausage is made, made the folks much more, committed to actually helping make the sausage. Yeah, yeah. So it was not all perfect. Like if my ambassador and everything is working, it's like, actually five five things are not working or we're trying to figure it out. What do you think? I don't know. That's phenomenal. Yeah, the vulnerability there, right? It's like, I'll be vulnerable and that engages people more. There's something really magical that happens when you become human or show them your humanity in a way, you know, like we're, we're, we're figuring this out. I tell parents that all the time we have monthly parent orientations where we, which was actually a parent idea. They're like, it'd be great if before we received our, you know, we had an an opportunity to connect with you. And so um, we started doing this and I, I tell parents all the time, I'm like, we do not have a monopoly on the good ideas. Like we need you, we need you to help us improve and change and, we're on a journey and we're just getting started. And yeah, I think at first there was a lot of hesitation around admitting that we were new, admitting that we were figuring things out. Cause you don't want, you don't want, I didn't want parents to feel like they were like our guinea pigs, right. Or like that they were yeah. in a test trial, which it all still feels like, right. Like, and one of, I had a, a recent, an opportunity to connect, uh, to share this with one of our, my employees, he was asking he said, this is too early for us to charge for it. We're, we're piloting a new all digital option. And he's like, it's too early for us to charge for it. I'm like, no, we have to charge for it. Like we could have said that about Lelu this whole time. We could have said, this is too early for us to charge for it. Like, and basically went through this whole, like the launch patch spiel. I'm like, if we don't charge, we're not going to get accurate feedback. And it's important. And just realized that so much in the early days of what held me back from trying things, from piloting, from getting customer feedback was this fear of, I don't know, that they would be upset, right? That that it was like not finished. And what I've realized over time is that they don't, they don't mind. They're just, they're grateful that we're trying. And I think letting the guard down has really been, I have to remind myself all the time, like it's okay that, that they see that you're on a journey. It's totally okay. And one thing that I remember this was a total turning point for me that Perry actually shared with me, Jeremy, was that he, I think I think he probably saw my hesitation or like this, my fear of putting something out in the world. And he said, what you're doing today is going to be embarrassing to you a year from now. You're going to be embarrassed. Like, you should feel that way. You should be like completely embarrassed about, and I still to this day think about that all the time. I'm like, it's, this is where we're at today, but a year from now, we'll look back and, you know, laugh. Right. Um, but just there's so much freedom in that that I didn't I didn't have that freedom freedom before that moment and that I like it's been so helpful to ha- to realize that that it's okay that we're on a journey it's okay to let customers in to that journey. Can you tell a story or or give an example of a recent time where you feel like it was you you pushed through the hesitation to invite people in on the journey or to be kind of you said a second ago they're grateful we're trying. And that that phrase just stood out to me. I just wrote it down. Can you think of a time recently where that where you had that sense? We're not getting it. We're not perfect yet, but the people that we're interacting with are grateful. We're even trying. Yeah, it was actually an interaction I had recently with oh a mom. So a mom uh, who just joined Lalu last month. 
was having issues with her getting her billing information updated on our website. Our website is a is like a disaster. It's so bad because the, the, the widget we had to... Introduce. No, it's pretty. I just went. No, Mar. It's like, I tell uh, I tell everybody that I'm shocked anybody ever signs up because 90% of our visitors visit us on mobile. And on mobile, the widget that we had to use to get the subscription service going is like horrible. You, can, you can't see it on, on your mobile device. Anyways, so she's having issues with updating her billing information. And... We're like going back and forth on chat and she reached out for support. And I, I ultimately, I just said, can I call you and I'll, I'll put in, I'll input your uh, billing information securely on, I can see the back end and I can put it in. So she's like, yeah, sure. Call me. So I called her and she's like, we love Lelu. Um, we want to sign up for the full year. This has been a, a phenomenal experience, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm so glad that this billing issue allowed us to connect and and I said, you know, we're figuring out our website. We're hiring our first engineer. She's starting later this month. We're going to get this all together. She's like, honestly, I love this. Like you are doing, you're saving me so much time. I would, I would have to translate all these things or all these materials for my kids. If you weren't doing this, I totally love that you're just getting started. And I love that we're of the, of your first user. She was like, I love that we're first to this. So it was, it was really amazing, amazing to get to connect with. She's like, Oh, you're the founder. She's like, I didn't expect the founder to be calling me. I didn't expect you to be the one answering the support question. I'm like, we're still, I'm still the one. (laughs) And no, it was, it was incredible. It was so, it honestly, I can tell you guys, it, it it meant a lot to me, a lot to me to get to talk to her, to hear her perspective. I asked her, what do you like about it? What are, what are you enjoying? What's been your favorite part? And that billing issue that I could have been embarrassed about, which I am maybe a little bit, but uh, we couldn't figure that out. Ended up being this great opportunity, right? To connect with her, to be transparent with her and for her to feel even more. And she ended the conversation by saying, I'm so grateful to be part of this community. And so like, oh, you are, you're part of this community. So sort of like very successful companies that we know, you know, make it so that their employees have to be in customer support at least one day a month or certain hours per week or something. And it makes a huge difference for everybody because they, they know who they're working for at the end of the day. Absolutely. So that's awesome. Is there one of the things I'd be curious about, Anna is, are there, is there any time at which, I mean, if you think about your founder journey or the kind of the span of activities that you undertake from customer service to pitching for capital, right? It's like, you know, those are to, to shipping boxes, to hiring designers, right? It's a pretty huge span. When you think about the, the, the phrase female founder, is there a particular time where you're mindful of that designation or that reality that you're particularly mindful either positively or negatively? And how, how do you interact with that? I feel like we've heard, by the way, about some of the ways in which female founder is super heroic, right? Mm-hmm. Is, are there times, maybe to put a fine point on the question, are there times where you feel like it's a setback or it's a hindrance? And what do you do in those moments? Yeah, I think, I think that's moments when I feel like uh, this is hard is when I'm pitching to, yeah, I, I don't know, the opposite of me, right? And, and I'm like, most of our, the people who purchase our product are moms. And so when I'm pitching, for example, to men who don't have kids, for example, that's hard. I'm like, how do I translate this for you? Or like, how do I, you know, um, help you understand this or the the pain that we're solving or, and 
I think that's where it feels hardest, I would say. Otherwise, in everything else, it doesn't, I, I don't know, I don't think of, I don't, I'm not aware, or I'm not thinking, it's not top of mind, this, I, like, that I am a female founder packaging, packing the boxes, you know, or, uh, or doing customer support. I don't think about it like that way. Most of our customers, most of the people that do reach out are moms, women. And so I just identify a lot with them, but I don't think I'm aware of the fact that because my audience is so similar to me that I don't, I don't know. I don't think of the fact that I'm a female founder. So what do you do? So you're pitching, you're pitching a man who doesn't have kids. You're like maximum awareness of your female founderness. What do you do one to kind of prepare for that or to, you know, get yourself in, in the, in the right headspace. And then, and then two, how do you conduct yourself in that moment for maximum effectiveness and impact? I, I use a lot of storytelling or like I ha- I asked them to imagine, for example, one person I remember pitching and um, he was a, like a white man and, but he was dating a, a Latina and I forget where she was from, but I was like, imagine that relationship works out. You guys get married and sh- your wife or, you know, then wife wants to teach your ch- children Spanish. How do you guys, how do you engage that? How do you do that at home with, you know, you, and that was like, it unlocked it for that particular person. I, I, I do a lot of just personal, I, I try to bring as many stories as possible of like, this was, and, and just sharing, explaining that this experience that I've had is a lot of families are having, right. It's, and trying to back that up with stories and then numbers, like my story, this very particular story that I shared with you, you know, can be replicated. And is those, this type of stories, you know, increasingly um, popping up all over, all over. And that's the market. So just, I don't know, arming myself, I think, with those stories and then inviting them to imagine. I, I've done that. And I don't know if that's like a bold move, but I'm like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's weird talking about their relationship. Like imagine that relationship that you're in, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, like no pressure. I'm not asking you to propose to your fiance, you know, to your uh, girlfriend. But if that ended up working out, they get, the they get, they're in cold sweats. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Mara, you know, it reminds me of one thing you did in Launchpad a few years ago, I think with the, maybe the, one of the uh, nail manicure teams and you said, and, and when you, you know, did your masterful session where you, I can't remember what I did, but well, you have a team pitch you and then you pitch them back basically. And one of the things I remember you did is it, it was right after Dollar Shave Club had been oh, yeah, you know, yeah. an enormous success. And you said, Remember Dollar Shave Club, you know, because every man in the room who's investing appreciates that opportunity. This is like that, except three times bigger. And it's just to me, it's just like leveraging that analogy of what's an animal like, oh, you mean something that you use every day that's going to show up in the mail and I'm going to pay a subscription for now that I have a mental model for it and the market's bigger. Oh, okay. Now I know what we're talking about, right? Because I think they were struggling with how to convey the feeling of getting a manicure or the feeling of getting a new set of nails. And you just connected it to something that the investor understands. Yeah. And I think it's uh, that that's really important. I also think you said that you have all these numbers and data to back you up. Did you, do you feel that that was more important with the folks that did not, maybe did not identify with the story? Well, well, yeah, because the fear when I'm like saying a personal story, like this is the journey I've been on. They're like, great. Well, that's nice for you. But like, what is that? That's meaningless to me. If, if I don't really truly believe and have conviction that, 
your story is actually representative of this like bigger population. And so the numbers help to, you know, my story, I think, gives it color. And I've also started using other like customer stories, right? Like, or take this mom, she's fourth generation Mexican-American and, you know, really committed to transferring the language to her kids. How does she do it? And bringing in those other stories is really important. But yeah, without the numbers, it's like, okay, you just told me three stories. Like, get it. You know? <laughs> yes. I, I actually think you're right about that. That you need both, both sides. It's almost like you need top down and bottoms up, you know? Yes. These, these and, pitches. And it's funny with every investor is like, I don't like it that way. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, last, the last investor I talked to told me to put, you know? So it's funny that, yeah, the different preferences yeah. I would say, in, in that. I think you're right. That Well, that's what's beautiful about investing and fundraising. Everybody's different. So I think the masterful uh, people that pitch are aware of their audience. So asking questions ahead of time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they can adapt the deck to whatever on the fly. So, but yes, you're right. We're a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> you are, Mara. You're a joy. I, I loved our, any interaction I've had with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. It, one, one question that I've enjoyed asking, I didn't realize I would, but it's been kind of cool just hearing folks think about it. How do you know, and this is kind of, this is a little bit obscure, but hopefully you can just dive in or, you know, take it as you will. How do you know when you have an idea problem? Meaning there are some times where it's like, I, I've got the answer. I just got to implement it. I got to execute, et cetera. And then there's other times where you go, we need options. We need to brainstorm. We need to generate. Is there a point at which you become aware that you need to click into another kind of mindset? And how do you do that? What are your go-to ways of not solving execution problems, but solving idea problems? That's such a good question. How do I know when I have an idea problem? And just while you're thinking, I'll just say, we talked to another founder and she said, she, I, I, I was expecting a very, you know, like, uh, like, like poised, polished answer. She has Jeremy. I have like five that I didn't realize till you said that are actually idea problems. She's like, I just, it's, it, yeah, I don't know what it takes to raise the, the, you know, the head above water to realize, actually, I need a different mindset right now. And so that's something I've become more curious about. Yeah. I think, I think we, I don't know, as a team, we're constantly asking ourselves, is this the right way to solve, you know, the, any, any sort of thing that we're, we're trying to decide on, like make a decision about like, it. so I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know that I have like a, a good answer for that. Well, tell us about a last decision or what's a recent decision. Just like walk us through it. What yeah. Like, I think one thing that we do a really good job of is making, have, giving ourselves a lot of options for when deciding how to execute something. So one example is we're doing this event for a school and we were tasked with creating like a different experience for different grade levels. And so it was like, what, what experience are we going to send kinder? What experience are we going to send first, et cetera. And we didn't, we had initial ideas that we thought, oh, this would work really well. But we also, I think we have a, just, this is part of our practices. We want it. We make this lo much longer list that we can then whittle down. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I guess it almost feels that we don't have a lack of ideas because we tried to, we always try to have like, an excess of ideas before we decide, okay, let's do these three and execute on those. 
So but where, where does that come? I mean, that is actually an amazing principle or kind of a guiding foundational, you know, touchstone. Where does that come from? Is there like, does, do you have a rule that says we need 10 options before we pick or like, how does that get encoded into the DNA? I think we do have that rule. I don't know where it got in- encoded, but there, there are a lot of things we decide on on a regular basis. So for example, our themes, every month we, we decide on a theme and we're, we're several months ahead now at this point, but like what theme do we choose? And in all of that process, from the very beginning, we've we've loved starting with a very really long list and then whittling down. And yeah, I, I got I don't know where it got encoded or where it came from, but just the belief that there's security almost in having a longer list rather than starting with a short list, and that having more data points or more options will lead us to the best options. And that I don't know that conviction has just been with us from the very beginning. And how do you choose? So you got a long list. I, I would say I am often the advocate for volume in any room I'm in. And almost, it's not always, but often a response is, well, what, like, we can't have too many ideas because if we do, like, we, we can't do them all. It's like someone's afraid of, the, of a wall full of post-it notes because it's too much possibility. I don't know. <laughs> I can't totally relate to that. But how do you say you, I mean, you, you said we have a long list and then we whittle it down on what basis? What are the, what are the selection criteria you use to make those decisions? Yeah. Usually um, we gather as a team, we're still again, three full-time employees, uh, another one joining um, and the three of us just kind of hash it out. Like uh, we have different criteria based on whatever it is that we're um, deciding on. So um, for example, a theme, uh, we like it to, for it to be relevant, something related to whatever month it's going to be sent in um, is something that will automatically engage kids. They, something that, you know, will um, they'll be excited about uh, something that allows us to have and include cultural elements. So we have criteria that we're um, filtering all of the ideas through and, and then it, I think, and then we vote on it. So we, we have a rating system at one to three and each of us gets to allocate our ones in ones, twos, and threes. And then we see like which one received the highest rating. And then we go off of like all the nines and all this, you know, and and decide and determine that way. Um, and we do these like regularly. Um, I would say at least twice a month when we have these like, dis, you know, meetings where we're deciding and going through ideas. Everybody is tasked with populating ideas on the sheet before the meeting too. So you have to have thought about it um, ahead of time. And, and then occasionally when we're having a hard time deciding, we'll ask our parent ambassadors and say, you know, we're, we're deciding between these two. Do you have a favorite? Um, and, and get kind of the, yeah, the, or the customer voice in, but um, I don't know. We haven't had any issues. And sometimes we have a lot of great ideas that we're like, that's a great idea, but not for this month or that's great. Let's, so we have this bucket now of all these awesome things that, we're excited about um, that just didn't fit into that particular month, or um, and so we keep those. We we like I don't know we like options, so we have this like list you know place we can go back and um, that can be a great launch point for other uh, I, you know execution moments or moments where we're trying to decide. That's incredible. I'll say something about these ideas because I think it might be helpful to you. Um, I think there's so many. That's what I love about startups, like. A typical employee doesn't generate a lot of ideas, but if you're like 
the first 10 employee in a company, you have a lot of ideas. Yes. <laughs> there are so many ideas. And, uh, you know, I think part of like this very early stage where you are, I say to my companies, one of your metrics for success is how many ideas can you get through in a given amount of time and test? Um, and I think, you know, it allows them to experiment, which I think at the beginning, you really, nobody knows. You're just trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. And if the mentality is, it's okay, we tried, didn't work, we won, you know. Yes. That empowers the employees too, which is Absolutely. great. Yeah, I invite I invite everyone to disagree with me because I think it's hard to since I'm the only founder on the team um, that like think they'll kind of defer to me like but I say no like I want to have a healthy disagreement disagree with me like push back um, and I'm grateful that both of them have kind of felt I think it started as a bit more um, reserved and then have totally leaned into that and said like oh and frankly I think I've also I've told them very clearly I'm like we're all responsible for to for our metrics like you are responsible I don't care that you're not ahead of marketing but you are responsible for us to get to this metric and yeah I, I think giving them that ownership and saying like you if we don't get to that I'm going to come back to you we're all responsible so what what do you have what you know what say do you have how do you how do we do this has been really good yeah for well, all of them. Mara, I've got to ask, how do you, so when you say, an, by the way, I am like 110,000% on board with you there. That's, which we can talk about another time. That's like a subject for a full conversation itself. But very quickly in the last one minute, you said, how many ideas can you get through? What defines getting an idea through, getting through an idea? How do you know if you've gotten through? Sort of validation, right? And I think the degree of validation of an idea, it's, as you know, you know, it can take a long time to fully validate something, but perhaps with something fairly quickly, you can get 80% of the way. So I think learning to do that as a company is a, it's a, it's a great tool, right? You know, uh, Tony at DoorDash, um, he has a math background and he said, I run the company like a, like a mathematician would. You know, I have a hypothesis and I go define the test and I go do it. And, you know, I think you can find that in a textbook as well, but it, I think good companies have that muscle, right? And it starts really early when you're three people. You know how to have the permission to test something, fail, move on, right? You know, not, you don't get it always right, but I think you, you probably get most of it right <laughs> if you have that. Brilliant. I love it. I'm mindful Anyways, of that. I have to go as well. Anna, I'd love to hang out. So it looks like the vaccine is coming. So I want to see can- you. Maybe we can go for a walk or something. I would love that. Please, let's do it. Let's do Anna, it. Anna, if Mar, if you want, I'm just going to have her tell her uh, website so the folks can get to it if they want to. But feel free to drop off if you want. Right. So, Anna, if folks want to, if folks listen to this conversation and they want to find you, where do they go? They go to www.lelusa.com. It's right here www.leluusa.com. I've got to mention one of my heroes, Leticia Britos Cavagnaro, who's the co-director of the University Innovation Fellows Program at the B-School. Leticia is a prodigious collaborator. And one of the things that she does that I love is she's always thinking of 
who can I share this piece of information with? If she's listening to a podcast or reading an article or reading a book, she's always thinking about what are the problems and interests of others? Who could she connect this piece of information with that it might benefit? She's an excellent example of how to cultivate the weak links that actually drive a lot of ideational potential by being proactive about giving rather than taking. And she's a hero to me because she's so thoughtful. I've benefited many times from her perspective and from her proactive outreach. And I know countless others have as well. Shout out to Leticia. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Can't wait to catch you on the next episode of the Paint and Pipette podcast. I will see you next time.